Bishop? Can you hear us now? <laughs> Is that better? Is that better, Elizabeth? Good, 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 yeah. I, we didn't. We thought maybe you'd just read our lips. <laughs> it's a contemplative Bible study where we're going to sit and just see what God has to say to you, you know, as you think about hearing the text. Yeah, as opposed that's, to actually hearing it. That's just like a quick... Oh, that's all right. I'll just All right. Okay. Where's Zeb? Is he okay? Um... I don't know that he's not. He read morning. He read the second lesson of morning prayer today online. So I, I know for that reason he's he's okay this morning. Amongst, amongst the living. He he's been online some, so I don't know if he'll come on. We have Mimi, Jim, Phyllis, Elizabeth. We have Constance hiding from us, but she's there. <laughs> trust, um, trust that. So, all right. We uh, we are at the witching hour. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So yeah, I, I I like more in this, especially when these heightened liturgical seasons. It, it's nice to study things that um, you know highlight the meaning of them. And so we did the we talked about the resurrection as um, Easter tide was drawing to a, a close. What we talked about it throughout, but um, in Acts chapter one and two, we begin to it describes in Acts one largely the ascension. And then Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. So we're in Ascension Tide. And Ascension in the, in the church is a season. It's a season that runs from Ascension Day, which was last Thursday. And it runs until Pentecost, which is this Sunday. So it's a 10-day season. And uh, we'll, we'll read through what that's about. And so there Easter, we have Easter, which is 40 days, that goes to Ascension, which is 10 days. And the cumulative, or the, the total of the 40 days of Easter and the 10 days of Ascension equals 50, which brings us to Pentecost, which means 50th day. And Pentecost was an Old Testament name uh, for a feast that uh, was um, 50 days after Passover. And so for us, um, it's 50 days after Easter, which fulfills Passover. But these are significant um, events. So as we talked about um, the last couple, we, we talked about the resurrection hope, the idea that our Christian hope is ultimately in the resurrection of the body, not merely a, a dying and going to heaven, but in a renewal of the entire creation. Uh, it's... it's <coughs> And, and it, this makes sense in the biblical context because it's, it's God created a world and says, said it was good. It's rather inconceivable that the redemption of that world would be its destruction and some spiritual existence. Instead, our redemption is the completion of that, the redemption of that creation and the bringing of it to its completion with us in it. And so um, we're going to shift here today and talk about... Um, Ascension, and then Pentecost, and, and Acts 1 and 2 just give us uh, a description of them that it's best just to start reading, and then we can talk about it as we go through and bring up any questions. Any questions about the seasons, their duration, their meaning? Everyone's understanding is perfect on these matters, <laughs> therefore... <laughs> It's like it's like they asked the story the priest gave a sermon and you know um, so he said what, what you know asked to be under you know what 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 he said what he talked about and you see he preached on the peace of God which passes all understanding. <laughs> <laughs> so 
The Acts of the Apostles is a book that has is a companion to a, a gospel. Um, it's a sequel to which gospel? Luke's gospel. And if we um, we we can note a similarity. And Luke Luke amongst all the gospel writers is unique for what reason? Luke, among all the gospel writers, is unique for what reason? In the gospel side, it changes in the Acts side. He wasn't among the twelve. Yeah, so he's not giving he's not giving an he's not purporting to give an eyewitness account. John is uh, no, thank you, I already had a rule. Um, John is clearly the, you know, the beloved disciple lays on the breast. Matthew, we understand, to be the apostle. Um, Mark is, um, by tradition, the eyewitness account of Peter, who, who he wrote down. So Luke is an historian who went and researched it. Um, and don't turn there, I'll just read Luke chapter, Luke's gospel, chapter one. He, he starts it by saying, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things in the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. So Luke steps back and writes as an historian, and this is where we get, um, you know, we probably got a lot of information from uh, Mary. This is why Luke gives us the most extended infancy accounts. Um, so if we get to Acts, we see here in Acts chapter 1, he, he, he refers to his gospel. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus. So he's writing to Theophilus, and by just there, uh Derivation of, of the word, you don't have to know a ton of Greek, Theo. The love of God. Yeah. yeah. So Theophilus, you know, theology is a study of God. A theist is a believer in God. So so Theo is God and, and, and uh, Philo is related to Philadelphia, brotherly love. So love, but, but the lover of God here. And we don't know whether this was an actual person or a uh, a device he adopted to say, I'm writing to you, know, to you, God lover. So the former account they made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day which he was taken up. After he had, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So that's a summary now because Luke's gospel ends with the ascension. But it doesn't give a lot of details about it. So we're going to get um, expanded account here. But it is here in the New Testament, and here alone, that we learn that Easter is 40 days, being seen by them during 40 days. So this is what sets the, the, the ascension calendars always being, since Easter is always Sunday, ascension will always be the 40th day after, which is always Thursday. He also points out that he had presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, uh, which, which, which means to show them unmistakable this he is, he is really risen. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, so this gives a sense that there's instruction during this time. And so the, 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 the thing is threefold. He presented himself to them so they could unmistakably know he was alive. 
they saw him during 40 days, saw him in various manifestations of that, and he spoke about the kingdom of God to them. The most extended um, account of what he taught them would be also in Luke's gospel. It's the two men on the road to Emmaus, where he <clears throat> says he says that he explained in the scriptures all the things turning to himself. Unfortunately, Luke doesn't give us the actual text of the sermon, which would be really nice to have, uh, but we know that he walked for a long time on the road with them and told them things. Where, um, but apparently, so, so that, and a lot of the um, apostolic preaching we see, we will see in Acts, comes out of that aha moment where, um, in the end of Luke's gospel, he opens their understanding to comprehend the scriptures. So these were all, all his disciples were men and women who knew the, um, the Old Testament. They were observant Jews. They read the Torah. They knew the story. Um, and they had a certain sense of the, of the Messianic hope. It wasn't until, though, after the resurrection and Jesus appeared to them that they had the aha moment to realize, oh, that's what this means. This, the, 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 to have the epiphany that Jesus is the key to understanding the teaching of the Torah. And so that becomes the apostolic teaching. And that's why um, some people will say, uh, we'll talk about Old Testament versus New Testament, or that's just the New Testament take on the Old Testament. Well, yeah, all the New Testament is, is the authoritative Christian fulfillment of the old. It, it is entirely that. And, and so to reject it is to be, you know, that's what, what marked the Jewish people who believed or who didn't believe. They didn't accept the revelation said Jesus is the Messiah. So, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, why is this important? I want to, we're going to get, you know, this is the time we're waiting for Pentecost. But, so um, don't, don't wait. Don't do anything. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is the significance of the Spirit in relationship to the Old Covenant? Was it given to everyone? It's just only given to certain individuals. But even in the old covenant, those individuals who received the Holy Spirit, was it the same way that the people on Pentecost received the Spirit? No. Why not? No, they didn't have flames of fire walking around on top of their head. Chronologically, though, what 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 did, what couldn't have accompanied the gift of the Spirit in the Old Testament? Of course, I'm crucified and risen. Yeah, okay. it, it, it oh. couldn't con convey the life that had not yet been won. Okay. So it could inspire, it could um, temporarily animate, but it couldn't it couldn't um, raise people from the dead. Which is which is and we, we need to be Didn't be, Elijah <clears throat> do that though when he laid on the the young man? He he, he did, but um, do you think that young man died again? Yes. Yes, the man died again. <laughs> yeah. So whatever healing. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, okay, so, so when I say raising from the dead, I, we, I see we, what we should. And, and so he's talking. He says, "John baptized you with water. You be baptized with the Holy Spirit." This is why all the New Testament language of baptism is highly connected to the resurrection. Okay. Um. St. Paul says in, in um, <laughs> Romans chapter 6, um, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So the gift of the Spirit is going to 
affect a resurrection? Why is that necessary in terms? And this, this is I want to situate this in in terms of the old of the old covenant. Where does the old covenant end? What what's the state? What why 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 is it have? Why do you need a new covenant? Did it, did it end when God kind of took off, uh, or did it end when Jesus came? But well, but okay, but, but yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know the question's a little ambiguous, but why did God take off? Because you're unfaithful. Unfaithful. Right. So the old covenant didn't work because the people were unfaithful, and so what is needed is someone to be faithful, and we get that Jesus is the one who was faithful. Um, but what will enable the people themselves to become faithful? Gift of the Spirit. So that so that we can't. It is it, it is our in our natural level in our in what the Bible calls according to the flesh, the natural impulses of our fallen nature. We cannot rise above our limitations and do the will of God. But the. The New Testament teaches us that in the Spirit, we can. Now, this does not mean we do it perfectly or without the growing pains of, of, of people who are becoming. Spend, to, to make this point, um, um, let's turn, let, I, I, one passage that is significant on this is, is Romans, which is the very next book after Acts. In Romans chapter eight, can't turn that slide. I just read it, but but um, in Romans chapter eight, in verse one, he says, "There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus." do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a whole new realm of life. And and he he goes on to say, um, in verse 4, that the righteous requirements of the law of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So St. Paul teaches that by the gift of the spirit, we are able to begin to love. Again, not perfectly, not without um, stumbles, but progressively and in a real way. So, Jesus can fulfill the covenant, and that's all great for him. But unless he gives us the Spirit, we're still stuck. And we could, and and um, so that's why he says, wait. Now, <clears throat> when we talked about the resurrection passages, you know, Father Hayden got to do the Ezekiel passage. I yeah, gave him, I gave so him the, yeah. I gave him the, uh, the good passage yeah. to do, <laughs> yeah. but. Um, Using that kind of metaphorically, we understand, so so going back to Genesis, um, what God said, well, let's go back to two things in Genesis, one in chapter two and one in chapter three. In chapter two, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. The breath of life gave Adam life. In Genesis 3, what Genesis said, the the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. And so, somehow, the breathing of the breath of life, something happened in sin that that somehow severed that, that bond of life. And so that Adam, though he appeared to be alive, was, was dead. And when the New Testament says, Uh, 
as it does in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And to be dead in sin is simply to be in a condition of being that lacks the spirit, is cut off from God, and can never by its own power rise above that condition of futility. So it's a condition of death. So in a sense, the, these, these um, disciples here are they're disciples, and Jesus has promised them all kinds of things, but in a sense, they're still dead. They've not yet been raised to life. And this, this, is, this is where we see it's so important for the, the concept of sort of ministry and life and guidance. So here they are in this period of waiting, and they, they could have said, well, okay, let's go out and spread this thing. Let's get a plan. But they couldn't have. And this is part of my uh, sermon from Sunday about waiting, is that it's an ongoing reality, because though we have the Spirit, it's quite possible for us to hurry into activity that's really not what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, but it's really our own um, anxiety or whatever it is that might be pulling us uh, to do. And when we do that, it becomes unfruitful. So, so there, there is this necessary thing in the Christian life patterned after this very thing that we have to wait and pray and God will, will, will come. And, and that's part of the process of discerning because when we hurry on into activity, we don't, you know, it, and it, it, I, I would also say this isn't a new thing. If you think about Israel in the Old Testament, even when God led them through the wilderness, you know, the Spirit a cloud by day, a fire by night, and God would go on. Sometimes God would just have to stay here for a while. But they had to wait and see where we're going. So it, it, it means that living the Christian life necessarily requires a seeking of what should I do. Um, now, it doesn't mean that everything is a matter of, like, where should I get lunch? I'll sit there and so God speaks to me and tells me I should get a sandwich and not a burger or something. You know, that those are just things you choose to do. And then when we're just de de determining uh, whether we should steal something or not, we don't need a, de a deliberation. Just the six commandments already spoken. Don't do it. So, and that's, that's where people get into real trouble in the spiritual life when they want to know what God is really saying when clearly he's saying don't do it, you know, and, and they, oh, well, he talk, told me to do it. Well, there was something, something told you to do it, but it wasn't God. So <laughs> obeying the clear moral commandments doesn't require us to sit around and deliberate for the Holy Spirit to tell us again. But I think in terms of, of understanding directions we're going in life, understanding what is God doing here to get that perception, that's a, a seeking, you know, where Jesus said that one of the uh, lessons we had last week at morning prayer uh, was, uh, or uh, I think it are even, but anyway, it's, it's um, that, you know, seek and you'll find, you know, ask and receive, seek and you'll find, not going to be opened. So he presumes this idea of a continual seeking. And in a sense, when we promise to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it has that inherent ambiguity to it. Where are we going? <clears throat> it's like, I love the passage where Jesus says, the guy, follow me. Uh, he says, oh, no, the guy says, I'll follow you wherever you're going. And he, and, and he has this cryptic line where he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Which means, like, if you think you're following me to some place we're all going to hang out and stay, you, 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 we're not going anywhere. You're just following. It's an open-ended, ambiguous uh, thing. Uh, Bishop, you know, back thinking of um, Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, where, how does it work when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples and he breathed on them? Was that like a down payment, <laughs> so to speak? There, there's a little bit of, yeah, yeah, it's, good, it's a good point. And, and there, are, there are scholarly debates about that in terms of, well, John's Pentecost came the night of, and there's no 40-day after Pentecost for John. Um, I think in the tradition the upper room breathing seems to be 
apostolic empowering. Hmm. Who sends you forgive, they are forgiven. Who sends you retain, they are retained. And the early church definitely understood. Um, it didn't understand it in the way that how, I want to flesh this out a little bit because it said it, it, it has to do with how sins are forgiven. And, you know, as, as the church grew and developed, became a sacrament of confession, and then the priest does this, and then you have to go to him to be. It wasn't so much that as it was the larger disciplinary authority that the church contained presided over by usually the bishop who was usually in the very early church, the president of the local congregation. And so um, baptism was normally the forgiveness of sins. I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Then there'd be, of course, ongoing sorrow. What you have in, in the early church sometimes was um, grave sin that separated someone from a communion. And it usually was uh, adultery or murder or apostasy under persecution. And <clears throat> so people, especially under persecution, after the persecution died down, people would often want to come back. And they had they actually had penitent groups. That is to say, okay, you're going to spend the time and back before you're admitted to full communion again. And the bishop was the one who had the ability to say, you can come back in now. And the penance wasn't like yours. And this is an important thing to understand about discipline. To say that, that there's time, it's not that your sins can't be immediately forgiven, but that we all need to learn. And, and, and that's why sometimes, even though our sins are immediately forgiven, we, we deal with consequences in our lives that train us in righteousness. We're, but even as we're doing that, we're doing the communion with God. So, for example, uh, a good example of this would be King David um, with the whole Bathsheba thing, mm-hmm. which is pretty serious, sin, apropos apostasy and all that stuff. Um, he goes, Nathan confronts him, and, and, and it's a very truncated thing, but David says, I've sinned. And they said, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> but now here's all that's going to happen to you. Yeah. You can run for your, you know. And so, but the whole point is, David never ceased to be the Lord's anointed, even when he was running. But this is a consequence God allowed him to suffer, to test. <clears throat> and then eventually he restored him to that. So this is something we have to understand, that that forgiveness does not mean there aren't in our lives consequences that are, that are, are uh, Train, they're oriented towards training. It's not punishment. That is to say, God doesn't need to, you know, uh, make us pay in a vengeful way. We need to learn that it what and and um, and we learn mainly by suffering. Unfortunately, <laughs> we learn lessons, and we and we we and I think it's it's um, I know in my own experience of this is that I think in the well let me just uh, propose a progression I think in the early stages sometimes of of Christian faith there's the the idea that you know um, your sins are forgiven because there's things I like to do but you know God says not to and I want this and, and it can come into the idea that in order to follow Christ, there's certain things we really want to do that we just don't do, and like God's cutting us off from good things. But I think later on, as we mature a little bit more, we learn that uh, when we fall into those things, we experience a sense of distance, and we learn that I don't want to be over here. I don't want to be here. We, we finally learn more and more that what God wants for us is really best, and that's where the willful surrender of things we grow into because we believe less and less the lie of the garden that God has a good thing he doesn't want you to have. And so, um, so the experience, therefore, of, of uh, as we mature in faith, of distance from God, even if it's momentary, temporary, uh, when we do something that, that makes us feel 
that in and of itself is, is teaches us, I don't want to be here. So I'm not going to do this because I don't want to be here. I want to be here in union with God and teaches us to, to, to want that more. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. So the Holy Spirit is probably, they can't do anything until the Spirit comes. So they're to wait. And he, he makes the distinction between John's baptism, with, which was with water, but it was a symbol of repentance and did not contain the Spirit. And that's how John knew who Jesus was. I mean, he was his cousin, so he knew who Jesus was. <laughs> it's how he knew he was the Messiah, because, because when he poured water on Jesus, the Spirit descended. Whereas pouring water on everyone else, no Spirit descended. So that's how he distinguished between between that. But going forward, when we're baptized, we, that is when we receive the Spirit. That's the outward, outward invisible sign of the grace of the Spirit. Yeah. That's right. And of course, we believe in our in our tradition that, and the church has always believed that conversion of the heart to faith is necessary. But also, we root our hope more in God's promise that God has has given us this gift, and here's the sign of it. And God doesn't pull back on what he says. And the problem with rooting our hope in our own subjective experience is, you, you, how do you feel today about your faith? How do you feel tomorrow about your faith? So the objective sacramental expressions of faith tend to be rooted in, in, in what God gives freely, objectively, and tends to be the Christian life as a response to that. So that we are baptized into Christ, it's a gift of salvation, and the result is life. And we renew that really in the Eucharist, in, in receiving Christ again. And the Christian life is always a response to grace, objectively given. So wait. So first. Um, Verse 6. Therefore, when they come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what's that question about? Their expectation of the Messiah. So what would they probably have envisioned? Jesus setting up his a, a kingdom. A kingdom. Like a, yeah. And, and it was hard to, I, I think if we can root... In fairness to these people, you know, these, these people who we say, well, I didn't understand, you know, this kind of salvation. I mean, there's a whole covenant relationship that's rooted in land and promise that they lost. The Messiah was supposed to restore. So how could he come? And this, this of course, is the central mystery or the central reason that people would doubt that this is the Messiah because he came and, and Israel not only didn't get restored as a national entity, got destroyed fully and finally, so that there was no nation until about 40 years ago. Um, it's hard for us as Christians who know these things to think about the kingdom, you know, that's here now. Yeah. It's hard for us. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So, so, so they, they wondered, okay, when's this thing you... Um, When's this thing going to happen? And so the, and that's the mystery they're wrestling with. Okay, we thought he was the Messiah, but he died. This Menorotimaeus. Okay, now he's arisen. Okay, we we get that. But now, okay, he's supposed to save Israel, but Israel's not saved. Okay, what? Well, yeah, this is all. This is a problem. And and so. It, it takes a while to meditate on how, how the salvation is taking place. Um, how, but this is a question to ask, how through the apostles, in what way does the very apostolic appointment constitute the renewal of Israel? What's the connection between apostles and tribes, 
Twelve. There are twelve <laughs> of each. Okay. So, um, and Jesus talks about the church, uh, well, I should say St. Paul talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so, is, there's a clear there's a clear indication in the New Testament that the twelve apostles are the foundation of the new Israel. Um, why? How can that be? Since ethnically there were twelve tribes, and they don't necessarily connect to those tribes. Kind of like Jesus being from the from the line of Melchizedek. It's what, of what importance is ethnicity or tribe to the new Israel? Nothing. Nothing other than that yeah. it comes from the Jews. Right. But and that's why you get in you get in in Revelation uh, chapter where there's two complementary visions: the hundred forty-four thousand, all the tribes of Israel. And then a multitude which no man could number of every tribe. And so mm -hmm. the full what this means is the fullness of Israel includes all of us. And and that's what um, John the Baptist said uh, to the Pharisees, you, you snakes. <laughs> God is able to to raise up descendants to Abraham from these stones. So the ethnicity isn't important. So you, you're founding, the new Israel's founded on a revolutionary concept that everyone becomes a member by baptism and faith. No longer is it circumcision as a sign of, of, of faithfulness to the old covenant. Now it's being baptized into him who fulfilled the old covenant. Because the ethnicity of the old covenant was important for the new, I mean, a lot of ways is important that we could go into, but most centrally because um, the, the Old Testament said the Messiah had come from Judah through David, and he was born, and then he had to be circumcised according to the law. So, and that's something that St. Paul says in Galatians. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made, St. Paul says. He does not say to seeds, like a whole bunch of seeds mm. or descendants, but to your seed, one, who is Christ. So St. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who, who knows the teaching, says the whole of the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in this one seed. And now that one seed is, is fulfilled the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, Lineal descendancy no longer matters. Everyone comes in by faith. This also um, accounts for the re for the renewed and revolutionary status of women in the new covenant, because in the old covenant, women were in the covenant by virtue of relationship to the male head of their clan, their father, their husband. That's why you you had you you were you were in the covenant that way. But now that um, Christ, the, the male head, has fulfilled that. Everybody comes into the covenant through Jesus directly. And that's the meaning of, of Galatians, who talks about baptism. Male nor female, slave nor free, you're all one. That's a revolutionary concept. Mm -hmm. that you, that, 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 and that's something that, ironically, and I think it's, it's, I'd say it's ironic, but it's not ironic, because what you get in sort of, Public criticisms often miss the truth, but you know a lot of the the contemporary thing is the church being this sort of oppressive patriarchal structure. The truth is that from the beginning, mm -hmm. the early Christians were liberators of women, and many women joined the church precisely because a status was given them there that they had nowhere else. Even in in and in the modern world. Um, it still remains that. I don't say that there isn't plenty of examples of, of, of bad Christians doing bad things, but I would just ask which culture you'd exchange in, 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 in that for, is it communism, which doesn't have a great, is it, is it Islam, is it, what, what culture 
do you want to say? This is, if they just did it like this, women would really be treated, you know, with their true dignity. So this is an important, um, that's an important thing. So, get back to the point of it, you know, <laughs> that, that, so the new Israel is, 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 he's, he's appointing 12 apostles and here, here it is. Here is the fulfillment. The old is done, here's the new. And, um, and now everybody comes in by, by baptism and faith. Verse 7. The so verse 8 says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. The Father's put it in his own authority. Need to know basis. <laughs> which, is lot, which is a lot of, like a lot of things in the life of faith. Yeah. Um, but this is also very significant. It says, you, you don't worry about that. Which seems to say, so if we understand when you're going to restore the kingdom physically to Israel or fulfill the covenant like that, it must be at his second coming. It's not for you to know the times and seasons. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Which is... Um, hinting at the idea of apostolic ministry because when the apostles died they appointed people and and there it carries on the apostolic witness that's why we say in the creed one catholic and apostolic faith the content of that that's the very essential thing that to which we we still bear witness um and we should be aware when you read the word witness it's not um that in Greek, it's the word that becomes our word for martyr. So you can't say it meant exactly martyr, but it, but it, it, but the fullness of Christian witness is a complete renunciation of world, so that one's witness is fully and and the epitome of that was the one who gave a whole life, their whole life for it. It's interesting in. Um, just in that kind of framework there, you see a kind of parallel between the parable of the talents. I'm going away. I'm giving you gifts. Okay. Use them. I'm coming back. We'll figure it out then. And so that's kind of where, where um, it is why sort of over-concern about the end of time, what's going to happen is is exactly what nowhere in, in the New Testament are we told to worry about. You have gifts, use them. And when Jesus comes, he'll 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 say, Well done, wait for all anxious and this, that, that's and that's that's one of the big problems I think with people who get too distracted by, you know, I mean, yeah, the world's a mess. The country's a mess. But you know what? Jesus is Lord. And I I've I've noticed in my own life, and the life of others, that if you don't orient your life around that, but orient instead around your prayer, around your gifts, how you're serving people, and how you're deeply connected to God and others, um, you don't have to be overcome by what you watch on news. Because it wasn't any better here in the, in the New Testament where they had great joy. Yeah. They were getting killed. Yeah. Oh no! What are you going to do? World's coming to an end. Got it. They, they, they were. They were. And so Christian joy is is um, is to focus on who we are, what we're called to do. We know the world's passing away. I think in our culture there's a difficulty in the current era of those who have a memory right. of a better, more friendly time. Um, but so that's worth mourning. Mm -hmm. So do it and move on because it's not coming back. <laughs> yeah. Done. And the whole idea we're going to capture something. You know, think about that that is, that is, is that, yeah, there were some good things. It wasn't a perfect country ever. And, uh, so anyway, but the focus on witness and, and, and waiting.
is is what Jesus, you know, be you'll be witnesses. Be about the business of doing what you're supposed to do. And don't worry about when the kingdom will be finally established. And it's it's always struck too that just as they were completely thrown off by how Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. You know, don't think like we know what this is going to look like. Exactly. I, I was <laughs> don't, thinking don't, that exactly. No, don't think there might be some curveball, but right. but we do know this: that if we're faithful to do what we're right. called to do, right. we'll, we'll be, we'll be we'll, in the right we'll place. Be, we'll be in the right place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So be witnesses. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. <clears throat> And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Very simple presentation of the Christian hope. He went to the Father. We're waiting for him to come again. In the meantime, he's going to send us the Spirit. Um, so one aspect, so he ascends in the cloud. Um, what happens? Where, where does he go? And what happens when he gets there? It's on the right hand of God's Father. It's on the right hand of God's Father. But in his body. In his body. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to read you a passage, but it, but, um, so. When we, um, when we celebrate Ascension, what kind of hymns do we sing? Let's tell me, because you know, they're, they're well known. We sang them on Sunday, we sang them last Thursday, a week ago Thursday, uh, last week. Um, what are, what's the theme of Ascension hymns? Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall be. Uh, so they're, they're coronation hymns. And the idea is that he who humbled himself to become man for us and then was vindicated in the re- resurrection and appeared to everyone now ascends to receive back and in, in spades the glory that he surrendered in humility to become man. So I want to read a passage, and I don't want to get too far into it because it's 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 a important passage. But um, if you if you forget what this is, it's in your prayer book. It's the morning prayer lessons for Ascension Day. Daniel has a vision. Daniel writing uh, before Christ, but he has a vision. In uh, chapter seven of Daniel, verse thirteen, he has this vision. I was watching in the night visions. Daniel got night visions. It was like not night visions. <laughs> visions in the night. <laughs> yeah. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So the Son of Man really refers to sort of the descendant of Adam and Christ. We talked about this in Corinthians. As an Adam all died, and so Christ all be made alive. So Christ is the new man. So he's the son of Adam who fulfills the vocation of Adam who didn't. So one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus took off in the cloud. We just saw that. This Daniel sees him coming with the cloud. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. So in Daniel's we have the son of man and the ancient of days who in our Trinitarian picture we would take to be God the Father. And the cloud, incidentally, in, in, the, in the scriptures, is often a symbol of God the Spirit. Spirit. Holy Spirit. 
who led Israel in a cloud by day and pillar fire by night. And, and, and so, so the, there's, a, there's, trini- there's an undeveloped but clear Trinitarian picture here of the Son of Man who's become man, who's also the Son of God, returning back to the Father, born by the Spirit. And they brought him near before him. Then to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And in in Daniel's night visions, Daniel got this vision after he had also had visions of these temporal temporal earthly kingdoms that that were uh, epitomized or, or symbolized by beasts, the lion and the bear, and so those are temporary, though they're wrapped and but here in the midst of, of one of those kingdoms, this kingdom is established. And we should note, therefore, in this Daniel language, um, the um, it goes right back to Genesis. What had God given Adam take dominion over the over the creation? Adam lost that through sin. We talked about that, we talked about the resurrection. But now to Christ is restored dominion. So it's all in the same biblical idea. And um, so that's, Dan, so Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, gives us a picture of what happened on the other end of the departure in the cloud. Where Acts just tells he went away in cloud, and, and in ascension, that's where he, we think he went for a coronation. Mm-hmm. That's such a powerful, uh, those verses in, in Daniel, they're really powerful. Now, the one, the one thing I'll say about this, and, and uh, I won't belabor it because we've talked about it before, and maybe when I say it 20 times, sometimes it'll kind of make some <laughs> sense. Because a lot of this is, takes some. But um, so this is the Son of Man coming on a cloud. But notice he's coming on a cloud, not to earth, but to the Father. Hmm. And so oh. in the Olivet Discourse, when he talks to the disciples and he says, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everyone assumes that means they'll see him descending mm-hmm. kind of like, here I am. But what it really means, it doesn't mean that. It means they'll recognize, they'll see that I am Lord now. And, and there are two things that, that, that make this important, and it makes all the sense out of the Olivet Discourse. It makes it clear that it's not about at least in his primary reference, the end of time. So when he, there's two places Jesus refers to the Son of Man coming in a cloud in his, in his passion. One is when he's talking to the Jewish leadership. Yes. And they say, are you the, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Tell us. He says, um, I am. And one of the verses is specifically, and, and you will see the Son of Man coming with cloud. When he talks to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud. Because the disciples are going to be warned to flee. They won't be there when the Son of Man comes in judgment on Jerusalem, when the judgment comes. So the image of the Son of Man coming in the cloud is the image of, of, of Jesus uh, as Lord bringing righteous judgment. It's not a specific image of it. Now, if at the end of time, you know, there he is on, on a cloud, fine. But, but the primary reference to that in the okay. first century is was coming in judgment on Jerusalem. Judging those who, and, and that's the, the irony. He's being judged by the leaders of Israel and condemned to death. But they will see him as Lord coming in judgment on them. After, incidentally, they've been given lots and lots of opportunity to repent. Yeah, we see that now. So, yeah. so, so do you suppose when when Jesus said that they they knew Daniel? Did they have? They absolutely knew yeah. Daniel. Yeah, and they thought that it was blasphemous that he was identifying himself with the Daniel figure. Yeah. What have more witness? Because yeah, he's he's claiming to be that guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This absolutely knew what they absolutely knew what it was. So verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. 
that's how long you go on the Sabbath day without breaking the, not the Torah, but the Jewish tradition of, uh, of that surrounded the Torah. And when they had entered, here's what, here's what they did. When they had entered into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, 11 disciples, because Judas Iscariot is no longer here. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. <clears throat> now, we should note when it says they continue in prayer and supplication that the Jewish tradition had daily hours of prayer. We see these in Acts later on, uh, where Peter goes to pray, you know, and, and Cornelius, morning, noon, and night. So they're continuing in the Jewish cycle of prayer. It's, I don't mean to say there's no extemporaneous free-form prayer, but what this means is they're continuing as a praying community, waiting. Um, and what's, what's interesting about this, I, 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 I haven't done this work into Jewish liturgy, but, of course, in the Jewish horizon, they'd be waiting for Pentecost, which was the barley harvest, and they'd be praying for a fruitful harvest. And mm. so I'm assuming some of the normal seasonal prayers here would have pertained very much to the fulfillment of that harvest in, in the coming of the Spirit, which makes which is the harvest of um, of souls, as it were. Didn't the Spirit come and they're celebrating the giving of the law as well? Yeah, yeah. The, well, they, the, the, the tradition came to associate that Pentecost with both the bar barley harvest is what it, it is the stated reason in Exodus and Leviticus, I think, the passages where they... But yes, that was, that was associated with that. Which is kind of interesting. Then we, then we can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I wonder, I mean, you raise a, good, a certain point since that was, I think, I think it was there. And since they did have scriptures like Jeremiah that talks about the law written in their hearts, mm -hmm. whether their home prayers, whether the liturgical verse didn't contain some of that, it's something that I'd, I'd uh, mm -hmm. um, be interesting to look into. But notice this, so the women and Mary the mother, so Mary the mother of Jesus and, and with his brothers. So this is the early, early group, the, the family of Jesus, they're all together. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, all together, the number of names was about 120. And apparently that was the, the size that allowed you to be an authorized group or something. So it, it seems to me that you've got two things going on here. You've got probably a, a, a smaller group, apostolic group in the upper room praying. You've got a large group of disciples who are gathering. I don't think all 120 are just living in the same room together. I think there's some coming and going here, a greatly truncated narrative. And he said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Not a pretty end. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called, in their own language, Acheldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his place. <coughs> now that is a quote from um, a psalm, and its uh, point of, of that quote is that, uh, now, in the life of King David, um, what's the parallel for Judas and Jesus? There's a parallel in David's life. I would say 
Well, I'm saying we just you know, we're not. Is it a fifth of count? Yeah, trusted a histo count. Who, when when the rebellion of his of his son Absalom was raised against him, his trusted counselor Hethopel defected, and he assaulted my own familiar friend who I trusted. We took sweet counsel together. And then it, then it came the imprecatory, let, you know, let these yeah. happen. And so the narrative is parallel and, and is picked up and applied to Judas in, in his uh, uh, mystery. Mm-hmm. Because he chose, you know, chose it. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Maybe Teresa with the kiss, that was really... And so... I think they're conscious that 12 is an important number. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to go, we, have, we need another guy. Therefore, and this is an important verse 20, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us in this resurrection. So note the 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 qualifications to be a successor apostle. Mm-hmm. They had to be with the band um, beginning from the baptism of John until now. So some, if somebody became a, a, a disciple during the ministry of Jesus after his baptism, he couldn't be an apostle. Mm-hmm. You had to be an eyewitness of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they proposed to <clears throat> Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And when they prayed and, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this casting of lots is interesting. Why don't we yeah. cast lots now for who should we choose? Let's just <laughs> yeah, let's just cast lots. lots. <clears throat> I do not know. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I, I, the, my best answer, <laughs> my, my, my friend and mentor, Bishop Gahim, said, well, because the Holy Spirit came, and now the oh. Spirit is in the community <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, to help yeah. us discern yeah. apart from um, random yeah. games of chance and lots. Yeah. There we go. They weren't even random, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't quite. Yeah. We yeah. Just, yeah. Was, yeah. Um, and it's also the lesson that um, it's very sad when someone abandons their ministry and calling. Yeah. But somebody else will come along and replace it. That's right. Yeah. And That's true. And, uh, and sometimes they're better. So that's kind of the the whole setup between, um, and that's kind of where we are now in the church calendar. We're like waiting in the upper room. We're waiting for the spirit to come on Sunday, and that's what kind of they. That's how we work our way through the through the calendar. So um, next Thursday we will come read chapter two about the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and look at some of the prophecies. Right. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Be with you all here online. Thank you so much. Oh, you forget? Okay. Thank you. It's such a year. It's so you.